Hi, everybody. Welcome to the January 10th, 2020 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Happy New Year. This is our first show in 2020, and it's our kickoff of our 28th season. Thank you so much for making that possible. We do not take 28 years for granted around here, trust me, and we appreciate you always tuning in. Let's get a quick take on presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg's visit to Colorado, complete with an appearance on the Brother Jeff podcast. Patty Calhoun from Westward. Uh, Colorado in 2016 seriously felt the burn when it came to Democratic primaries. Uh, can uh, Buttigieg make an impact here in Colorado? Well, he certainly drew crowds to the Fillmore that night and to maybe some secret fundraiser in a wine cave. But it was really fun watching him on Brother Jeff's show. You know, this is right before great polling for him in Iowa and New Hampshire both. But his dancing on Brother Jeff's, not really great. I've been on that show, and I know you do not try to dance in that group. <laughs> Wise advice, as always. Uh, Michael Fields, Executive Director of Colorado Rising Action. Great to have you back. Uh, Michael, uh, uh, Pete Buttigieg did not let the NAACP question, the infamous question on the Brother Jeff show, uh, trip him up. What did you think of his appearance and his appearance in Denver? Yeah, I mean, I, he came here, obviously, to raise money, to get a little bit of support. Um, you know, it wasn't the 10,000 people that, that uh, Bernie Sanders had last year. Um, I think the, the thing he has to do is really focus in on Iowa and New Hampshire, because if he doesn't win both of those, I don't know how relevant he is once he gets here in Colorado on Super Tuesday. Uh, his appearance on Brother Jeff was, was interesting. Uh, I think when it comes down to it, he's struggling with African-American voters. Uh, I don't know if this is going to help it in time, but, uh, you know, it was good, good seeing presidential candidates here in, in Colorado. Political analyst Eric Sonneman joins us, also a weekly columnist with Colorado Politics. Uh, Eric, Colorado being part of Super Tuesday is something. It's, it's not enormous, but we're, we're part of the game. Do you think we're going to see more people like Pete Buttigieg come by to see if they can make an influence here in the Centennial State? Oh, absolutely. Anyone who thinks that they, everyone's going to be looking for their claim to fame on Super Tuesday, their state that they can point to and say, you know, we may have lost here and here, but we won here. Uh, I, I somewhat agree uh, with Michael in terms of so much of this, by the time it gets to Colorado and Super Tuesday, depends on what has happened in the month prior with New Hampshire, Iowa, South Carolina, Nevada, etc. Uh, I'm not sure Buttigieg has to win both of those opening ones, but he needs to make a strong show, a strong show both places and maybe a win one place. Uh, is this still Bernie country? I'm not sure. Uh, I think, again, that depends on whether he has consolidated that base, has put uh, Elizabeth Warren on the ropes by the time it gets to Colorado. It's going to happen really quick, and it's going to be fascinating. Penn Tate joins us. It's great to have you back, Penn. Uh, attorney with Tate Law, also a former state lawmaker. Uh, Penn, what do you make of uh, Buttigieg's chances to be the moderate in the field? I mean, Joe Biden's clearly that headliner on the moderate side, but when it comes to the moderate uh, candidates within the Democratic field, there's not a tremendous amount of competition anymore in that upper tier. What do you think? You know, I think he's got a good shot, and I think he was wise to get to Colorado early. When you take a look back over the last few cycles, Barack Obama really did well in Colorado and come caucus time. He was the reason that people showed up for caucuses. Um, the last time it was uh, Bernie. I mean, that was the person who motivated everybody, and I think Buttigieg has seen that. Um, our demographic is unique, and it may actually be more reflective of Democrats nationally than Iowa and New Hampshire are anymore. And so I'm not certain he needs to do well in both of those. But if he plays well in Colorado after that, um, it may give his campaign um, renewed vigor. 
Governor Jared Polis gave his State of the State address on Thursday. In his speech, Polis asserted that the state is suffering from economic inequality. He proposed to tackle the problem with a public option for health insurance and a paid family leave program. Meanwhile, 38 climate change protesters were arrested during his speech, calling for a ban on fracking. Patty, we always take state of the blank speeches with a grain of salt. It's a speech. It's not a, a policy agenda per se. But what did, what did you get from this latest one? Well, certainly the arrests were big. They started out thinking there were 25. There were 38. Some of them were kids, um, so their names haven't been released. I was trying to think of the last time there were mass arrests at a state of the state a speech, and I couldn't remember offhand. It was a pretty good speech. It was interesting that the environment came up, but mostly in the context of climate change, rather than fracking that word, which is becoming a very uh, heavily uh, politicized word in this state was not uttered, but we talked about climate change. He gave a shout out to Tri-State, which had just given him kind of a big win the day before when it announced it's going to shut down its coal plants early in uh, New Mexico and Colorado. Not a surprise that he was talking about paid family leave, although small businesses are still concerned about that. The public option is going to remain increasingly popular as people start looking at their property assessments coming, their other bills coming. So, and, and his all-day kindergarten, I think, has been a big hit. So he focused on things that people could pretty much get behind in the new legislative session. Michael, we also heard things like tax cut uh, in the midst of a uh, Democrat, Jared Polis' uh, State of the State. I'm not sure if a lot of people had that on uh, State of the State bingo. Uh, but uh, do you think that's just what he says in the State of the State, or maybe there's some energy behind it? I think he really wants that. I don't think the uh, Democrats in the legislature are going to let that fly. And they, it came up last year that he mentioned he wanted a, a tax cut. He also claimed credit for uh, the tax cut, temporary tax cut that we'll get from Tabor, uh, which was I thought was pretty funny given the fact that he was against uh, Prop CC. But, you know, I think when you look at it, the governor, his rhetoric says one thing, the state of the state, a lot about bipartisanship, working for all of Colorado. Uh, but I think the, the legislature last year overreached on several issues, and he signed everything. He went along with everything. Uh, you had national popular vote. You had the oil and gas battles, as I mentioned, Prop CC. Uh, I think when you look at things like public Option. I don't think it's going to be more popular the more people hear about it. It is cost-shifting. Uh, it's price-fixing. And you look at paid family leave. I think it could be a popular proposal, but we'll never know because they won't send it to the people. It's a tax increase. It should go under Tabor. Uh, they won't do that. Uh, but I think you have a, a Democratic Party in the legislature that's moving further to the left. And I think the base is closer to those protesters talking about banning fracking uh, and all that. And so we'll see how far the governor is willing to go this session, given that it's 2020 and there's people on the ballot. Eric, how bright do you think uh, Governor Polis's libertarian streak will be this year? Well, first of all, I have to say it took all the self-control I could muster not to start shouting when Patty and uh, <laughs> Michael were talking and, you know, rolling out a, a band fracking now poster and all the rest. But I, I managed to, uh, to, to, to restrain myself. Uh, Polis's libertarian streak shows itself sort of on rare occasions and at unexpected moments. I'm not sure I see it this year. We certainly saw it around the vaccination uh, issue uh, a year ago. There's an irony here that I don't think there's a governor in the country that I can point to, maybe somebody else can beat me to this, who has probably been more hostile to the fracking industry than Jared Polis, and yet he is the one who is the subject of these protests, which might show just how far out some of these protesters and the groups they represent uh, just might be. I mean, the major legislation was passed, uh, what was it, 180? 
181, excuse me, a, a year ago. Uh, that didn't give the anti-fracking groups everything they want, but it gave them a heck of a lot more than half a loaf. It gave them three-quarters or 80% of a loaf. Uh, but, you know, I guess if you're an absolutist, uh, nothing is ever enough short of, short of absolute. Uh, I, I think to pick up on Patty and Michael real quickly, tonally it was a bipartisan speech. Substantively it was probably, you know, a liberal um, uh, laundry list. The, the list is getting shorter because a whole lot of items on the laundry list got ticked off a year ago. Penn, uh, as a former state lawmaker, you've been in that audience before as someone uh, getting, I guess, the, the policy agenda or at least whatever you can uh, ascertain from a state of the state speech. If you were sitting there now as a lawmaker, uh, did you, would you think you felt any pressure from that speech? Was it pie in the sky, you don't know the reality of it? Where, where do you think lawmakers are going to take it? Well, you know, pressure probably not. But, but what the state of the state usually tells you as a lawmaker is when a governor talks about specific proposals, that governor has a legislator lined up prepared to introduce the bill to put it in front of you. So it gives you a preview of things you're going to have to vote on. One of the things that I think Polis has actually done very well compared to his immediate predecessor is he has been more engaged and proactive with the legislature where his predecessor tended to be reactive, which frustrated a lot of folks on the second floor because they never knew what the governor would or would not sign on to because he wouldn't signal. Polis is very clear. He's indicated, and I think some people find it refreshing. You may not agree with where he's going, but he tells you, I'm going to work on these three things, and this is part of my agenda for this year. So, all the, you know, the General Assembly is on notice now. They know what's coming up, and you have to start figuring out where you're going to land on some of these issues. This week kicked off the 2020 Colorado legislative session of the state capitol. Senate President Leroy Garcia laid out a more progressive vision than he had in the past, while Republicans praised current economic stability and called for fewer, regula fewer regulations. There will be at least one major bipartisan piece of legislation this year, with Republican Senator Jack Tate joining Democratic Senator Julie Gonzalez in sponsoring a bill to end the death penalty. Uh, Michael, did you see anything in these first few days that Republicans might be able to hang their hat on uh, as we go into the session? Well, I think you, you mentioned in the, in the beginning there talking about uh, the economy, talking about Tabor, talking about lower taxes. Uh, you know, they were standing when the governor did call for that permanent tax cut. Uh, I think they also have hang their hat on education issues. Uh, the, you know, after the, uh, the speeches that they gave, they had a press conference talking about a bunch of, of different education issues that they really wanted to focus on. Uh, you know, a lot of them having to do with teacher pay and trying to get teachers more money. I think it's a good, smart move to try to brand with education issues. Uh, I think you also see, uh, you know, President Garcia, uh, you know, it, it was a little bit more uh, progressive in his speech originally. Uh, I think he's getting some pressure from uh, both the, the House and the Senate saying we have big majorities, we need to push stuff through and we need you to get on board with that. He also had an interesting line about wealthy insiders hoarding power and bending the political agenda, which I thought was funny given the fact that Democrats have complete control over everything. You have a governor uh, who put $25 million into his race. You have Hickenlooper, you know, under ethics investigation for flying around in private jets. Um, I just thought it was a weird line that he brought up, uh, you know, the, the fact that wealthy insiders. Uh, but I think, you know, you look at it, the, the, the death penalty will be a big issue. We talked about family leave. We talked about uh, public option. I think there's going to be a lot of, of, of contentious issues uh, this session, and we'll see how they, they play out given that it's an election year. Uh, and, you know, Democrats think they're going to keep a majority forever. I don't think that's the case, uh, but we'll see.
Eric, we've seen an attempt at a uh, repeal of the death penalty before. Do you see anything different this time? Do you see other uh, opportunities within the session from these first few days? Yeah, I do see something different on the death penalty. I think Jack Tate uh, signing on as a co-sponsor is a, a strong move on the part of the proponents of, of getting rid of the death penalty uh, and a courageous move, quite frankly, on the part of Jack Tate. Uh, he's term limited. He's made clear this is his last year, so it's somewhat easier to be courageous. But, uh, but nonetheless, the death penalty repeal failed last year because they couldn't get enough Democrats to rally around. So the question becomes, well, there are really two questions. One is, can they get the Democrats to rally around to give them the majority? Or, with Tate on board, can they pick off a couple of Republicans to fill in the gaps for Democrats who won't, uh, won't join up? But I think that is a headline uh, bill of the session. I thought the best line of the opening speeches, at least the one that resonated with me, actually belonged to House Minority Leader uh, Patrick Neville, uh, talking about pogo stick lanes. Uh, and it's something we've talked about around the table, but uh, I think that is the tension these days in transportation funding, is how much of it is going to roads and how much of it is going to alternative transportation. We all support alternative transportation, but I got to tell you, as I drive around Denver, Every week I see another bike lane that is completely underutilized, if utilized at all. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of pogo sticks in them, but the point was made. <laughs> Take your time. Those become rentable or you, know, you never know. Uh, Pan, again, we lean on your experience. The, the first few days of a session uh, do not necessarily map out the rest of it. But from what we've seen so far, especially what seems to be a very different tenor in the House and the Senate, the uh, Senate being a little bit more serious this year, being a little bit more contentious, the House was almost like a reunion week and, you know, chummy, uh, at least for these first few days. What do you take from what we can ex from this week for what we can expect the rest of the session? Well, we're clearly going to see the General Assembly deal with some tough issues. Whether you like um, the public option or not, the reality is um, the vast majority of Coloradans are unhappy about the cost of prescription drugs and health care and the, the inability to get coverage. So someone's going to have to do something to address the situation. It's not going to be done on the federal level. Many of these opening day speeches um, are kind of like the governors. They're put out there to sort of see how people react. Trust me, a number of legislators will be watching this show and other shows to hear how people respond to some of the concepts put out there. But, you know, I think um, we are going to see public option, death penalty repeal, a host of pretty progressive to liberal issues put forward because I think many legislators feel there's an appetite for that in Colorado. Although we're sort of a purple state, we've been trending uh, toward the more progressive um, direction. And when you have majorities in both chambers and a governor, that's when you push the advantage and we'll see some of that. Patty, if uh, there's lawmakers out there watching the show, first of all, welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, what, what is your response? How did you feel from the first week from what you heard from both the Senate and the House? Well, I think Leroy Garcia misspoke. He meant wealthy outsiders, like the kind who were trying to recall him last year. So he's still there. That's good. Uh, Jack Tate, I think we have to give an award for a strong comeback. Remember when he got mired in the whole sex harassment thing? For some reason, it took the legislature, what, two years to come up with a plan when basically you should don't say hands to yourself, don't tell stupid jokes, behave yourself. But um, this death penalty position is an honorable one that he is taking. Whether or not people agree with it, agree with him, he is saying what he feels is right for Colorado. So strong comeback by Jack Tate and the Republican Party. I think one of the bills that's coming up that's going to be really interesting and a more serious issue um, than 
just plain sex harassment, is the sexual assault. And they may be removing the statute of limitations entirely. We're seeing the Boy Scouts are worried about it. The Catholic Church is worried about it. Washington's passed such a law. New York is, is passing such a law. And I think that will pass in Colorado this year because there are many really egregious instances and you don't recover from them quickly. At the end of December, a Denver County Court judge ruled that Denver's camping ban is unconstitutional, saying the ban amounts to cruel and unusual punishment. However, Denver government officials are still moving forward with encampment cleanups and plan to appeal the ruling. Uh, Eric, this, this ban has been in place since 2012, so eight years later it's a, a little late to the party. But what effect do you think this is going to have in the long term since there's an appeal in place and the Denver voters just said they were perfectly fine with it uh, just in 2019? Yeah, and it's not only been in place since 2012, but the Denver voters not only said they were fine with it, they said it by 80%, 81%, some huge percent of, of the vote, what was that, seven, eight months ago. Um, so public will is clear. Now, obviously, judges don't weigh public will. They, they weigh law and the Constitution, et cetera. Uh, this strikes me as probably the intractable problem of our age or one of the intractable problems of our age. We always make the mistake of treating homeless as sort of a monolithic population when it's made up of so many different populations and one strategy is not going to address the whole thing. It's, as we've talked before, it's a balance of interests and the people who are not homeless, who reside in the city, pay taxes in the city, etc. They have rights and they have interests too. They expressed them at the ballot box uh, May last year. Uh, I've spent some time recently in a number of West Coast cities and you can go up and down that West Coast, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, LA, and you see the consequences of letting this issue get totally out of your control. And Denver cannot afford to let that happen and that's what's at stake. Ben, uh, not only a former state lawmaker, uh, a former mayoral candidate, where you were talking about this issue probably on a regular, if not daily basis, uh, and uh, as an attorney, what do we need to know about the legal side of this? There's a lot of different angles here. What's the most important highlights for our viewers? You know, probably what's most important and what's most distressing is <clears throat> these court decisions, and the, the Ninth, U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has also upheld a decision like this. What they're saying is it's cruel and unusual punishment in violation of the U.S. Constitution. That's what's striking down these bans in different cities. Um, and Eric's right. It is a balance of interest. But many of these folks are homeless through no fault of their own. Some of it's health issues. Some of it's mental health um, problems. Some of it's just an inability to get a job. There are balance of issues, sure. But the problem we have is what the courts have been saying is you can't just sweep people when you've not made a concerted effort to address the problem. And that's the fundamental issue here. Yeah, the camping ban's been in place for a number of years, and Denver's enforcement of it has been episodic at best. But the reality is there's not been a comprehensive approach to addressing the issue in a concrete way and investing the resources. And in a city where, um, and even when Buttigieg was on Brother Jeff's show and they were talking about Denver being the mile-high expense state, um, in a city that is doing well economically, it just boggles the mind why no one has the political will to sit down in city government and say, we just got to put resources into this and address it once and for all. And until you do, 
You're going to continue to be challenged by these court cases. And it's very bizarre that you've lost the court case, but you're still saying we're going to still inflict cruel and unusual punishment on people and see if we can get a different result in an appeal. Patty, what do you think of at least the current, I'm not sure if I call it a compromise, but the current move from the city right now where they're doing sweeps basically for stuff, but letting people stay where they're at. We're just cleaning everything else up. Uh, Is that balance going to work? Well, it works for right now because there are city ordinances about health that allows some of that. And I know the conditions are bad, but here's why 300 failed. It went down a hugely funded campaign that said we can do better. Well, we see no evidence that since that went down, the city is really working to do better, to deal with all the different people who are experiencing homelessness for a variety of reasons, as Penn pointed out. I would like to see the city step forward, have some more public discussions. We haven't heard a lot from the administration since this Johnny Berejas um, decision came down at the end of December. And I think this is the primary issue right now facing Denver. Michael, wrap it up for us. I mean, people drive around different uh, city, uh, different streets in downtown. There's tents, and that, that's not a fantastic thing. Uh, people also don't want to be cruel, but we've seen uh, laws get, uh, not, I wouldn't say struck down, but it's found unconstitutional, and then uh, public opinion that's kind of against it. I mean, it's hard. It's, this is a, a difficult pretzel to figure out for uh, the city government. Where do they go from here? Yeah, I think if it was easy, it would be fixed uh, by now. And I think the problem's getting worse instead of better. Um, the legal issues are really interesting, given uh, the fact that the courts have ruled in other areas, Idaho, uh, but you know, it's based on the fact that there weren't beds or shelters available uh, for people here in Denver. They're saying that there are ones uh, available. I think to to um, to Penn's point. There has to be a concerted effort to fix this problem, and I think this is going to put more pressure on the city to put more resources or to make sure that it's you know, easier for people to, to find uh, beds and shelters. I think uh, when you look at I think ultimately it will get reversed because it is different than that Idaho case. Um, but I think you know, this um, 300 didn't go down just because, or you know, 80 to, 81 to 19 wasn't just because of money. Uh, I think there is a real uh, sentiment out there that, that this is, you know, something needs to get done about this that we can't can't uh, let it continue to go on as it is. And so I think, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see how, how it goes, but at least the city's going to have to be focused on this issue, uh, and I think it's a big one. Well, let's get to our very favorite part of the show, uh, Disgrace of the Week, as always. Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. Well, kudos to a sometime occupant of this table, Susan Green, who on New Year's Eve gave quite the present to CU when she uh, printed the list of finalists for Mark Kennedy's job as CU president. Uh, that showed there were a lot of different stories that the CU regents had given us that did not hold up at all. You know, that people who were very qualified were completely snubbed, like a Bill Ritter, Donna uh, Donna Lynn. Um, And it was a great story by Susan Green. And, of course, the response by the CU regents was, maybe we should find out who leaked this, because, of course, that's their big problem, not that they just had one finalist for a really prestigious position. So that was a problem. They're on a retreat right now, coloring and doing kumbaya, trying to learn how to be nice to each other and the rest of the world. They've got bigger problems to worry about. Being off for uh, two weeks, we miss uh, uh, things like that. I'm very glad you brought that up. Michael. Um, Colorado Rising is proposing uh, ballot issues for setbacks on oil and gas again, uh, same ones that lost uh, in in 2018. And then you have the Fiscal Institute uh, has proposed 35 new potential tax increases to the title board for the ballot. So I I think to both groups, uh, voters have weighed in on this. Uh, Give it up and move on. Eric. 
I'll play pile on and follow up on where Patty was. Uh, everything Patty said is dead on, but let me add to that. This retreat that they are at as we tape this show is at a cost of $51,000. Last I looked, you had nine members of the Board of Regents. I'm sure there, you know, there's the president and a few other administrative hanger-ons. It's, what, a one-night retreat out at the Gaylord Resort. I know rooms are pricey. And I know consultants, the consultant they hired to do marriage counseling or fidget therapy or whatever it is, probably doesn't come cheap. But for the life of me, I cannot figure out how you get up to $51,000 for this retreat at the same time higher ed is so desperately underfunded. I uh, visited the Gaylord Complex uh, over the Christmas holiday. I could see I got the $51,000 very fast. You have to pay for that. <laughs> well, you know, and crayons and scented markers are expensive, right? I mean, you know, that stuff. That's, not for, that's right. Pen, um, your disgrace of the week. My disgrace, I have to first combine kudos to Patricia Calhoun and Westward for breaking a story. After Denver citizens paid $2 million for a conservation easement, after state law indicated you can't void a conservation easement unless you can prove it's impossible to fulfill its purposes for open space. And given that the land is already zoned as open space, it boggles the mind while the city of Denver is allowing a planning process to look at the redevelopment of the Park Hill Golf Course. Now time to say something nice about somebody. Patty? I'm going to say something nice about Historic Denver, which had a really big year that even came down to saving Tom's Diner, brokering a deal that got the the property owner came out whole, people who love googie architecture came out whole. Another one that we'll see soon is the Livestock Exchange Building, which is right out by the stock show. Yeehaw starts tomorrow. But that building, or actually a complex of three buildings, also going to be saved. Historic Denver has done a good job this year both negotiating saving our past, but protecting property owners, too. Michael. Uh, With session starting this week, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about how hard campaign season is for families, uh, but session is very hard, too. They go long hours, and so I wanted to give credit to the families of legislators and other elected officials uh, for what they sacrificed for the state. You're here. Eric. Nicely said, Michael. Uh, Let me go to Hollywood. Ricky Gervais, that was refreshing, his monologue uh, at the Golden Globes. It's one thing to call out hypocrisy. It's another thing to do it when the hypocrites are sitting right in front of you. Uh, That was well done and, and, as I said, refreshing. Penn. Sort of to follow up on Michael, um, we often criticize um, government, the legislature, elected officials, but there are a lot of good people who commit their lives to trying to do good works. And one of them is Lois Court, who many of us have known for years. Lois started as someone who was just active in the neighborhood, active in the community, helping other people, and then ultimately got the itch and ran for office and has served, I think, with distinction in the Colorado legislature. She is stepping down due to a serious medical um, illness and situation. And I just wanted to know she's in our thoughts and prayers and we'll be supporting her and thinking of her. And thank you for what you've given to all of us. Here, here. Well said. Before we go tonight, uh, I want to tell you all about, uh, we're taking the show on the road. Colorado Inside Out on the Road is going to be at a special event with our partners at the Academy for Lifelong Learning. That is going to be on Tuesday, January 28th. They're doing a special free uh, one-day learning seminar. You can be part of it. If you want to check it out and see us at 1 p.m. at this special day, check out uh, academyll.org for more information. It's a free event. We love to see you out there. It's really going to be a lot of fun. For everybody here at Colorado Public Television and Colorado Inside Out, thank you so much for watching. I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Good night.
Thank you.